to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Romans 3, starting in verse 9. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me pray. Lord, we we humbly acknowledge that we need you, Lord. We need you this morning to help us understand your word. We need you to help us love your word, even when it teaches us truths that are hard for us. Lord, we need you to continually demonstrate to us your glory and your holiness and your majesty if we ever hope lord to understand our sinfulness and our need for you lord it is so easy i admit for me and i'm sure for others to lower the standard of righteousness and begin to feel increasingly like i'm meeting it to Believe in some way, Lord, that I'm not really as bad as you say here in your word. That I'm not really as sinful as this. That I don't really need a foreign righteousness so desperately that your son had to be crushed for me. Lord, but your word says it's true. And uh, we know that we struggle with really believing that. We want to answer back that we're not that bad. But Lord... Your word is abundantly clear that we are. Help us to understand that, to embrace that, and to see that our only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. For your name's sake, amen. We'll often hear people talking about the fact that salvation or damnation of people groups, you know, is really hard to determine for us. People groups have never heard the gospel. How do we know if they're really saved or damned? We can't really know that um, if they've never heard the gospel. We can't really be the judges of their hearts. They may have responded well to the light they have, etc., etc. You guys have heard this, right? What about the people who've never heard the gospel? And the response is generally that we can't really know because maybe those people have responded really well to the light they have or we can't really judge. You guys heard this before? When I was in college, I remember hearing this the first time I came to the realization that the gospel may have the implication that people who have never heard are damned. I remember I was sitting at a table in the quad and I was talking to one of my professors who was a Bible professor and I was talking to another student and I asked the question. I said, if what you're saying is true, that Jesus alone saves, what about the people who've never heard? 
They've never heard the gospel. How is it fair that they would be damned if they've never heard the truth of the gospel? And that was my question. I, have you guys ever struggled with that question? How is it? F- they've never heard. We get to hear, but they never have gotten to. How is it fair that they would be damned? And so my professor being the less than conservative guy he was, responded that, well, you know, they probably are saved if they respond well to the light they have. And I was like, well, that's interesting, but that doesn't seem to make any sense given what I'm reading, but okay. All right, I guess I'll go with that. They just must have responded well to the light they have, and hopefully some of them do it. I recently, in fact, listened to a guy, and I, I don't want to pick on other pastors, but this guy has, has sufficiently crossed the line. He's become the, the, his church is the biggest church in America. You guys know that? About 40,000 plus people attend there. His name's Joel Osteen. You've seen him. Popular book writer. And I watched an interview with him and Larry King, and it was sufficiently crossing the line for me to mention his name. He was actually asked the question, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but by him? Is that true? A lady called in and asked. And Larry King said, now, you believe that, don't you, Joel? And Joel said, yeah. And he goes, and Larry says, so then you believe that, for example, people who reject Jesus aren't saved? And Joel said, well, I, I can't say that. I can't judge their hearts. He said, well, what about atheists? Larry King asked him, what about atheists? Well, I don't know. I can't judge their hearts. They might be good people. Hindus, good people. I know some good ones. And I thought to myself, that's interesting. This guy's view of the gospel is that if you're good enough, you'll be saved. And that for those of us who recognize we're not, we need the gospel. But otherwise, some of the people out there are just good enough to do it. I was floored to hear a pastor that is this popular flat out deny the gospel flat out. You can be an atheist. And if you're good enough, you'll be saved. You can violate the first commandment as a way of life. The greatest commandment: you should love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can violate that as a way of life and still be saved. If you're good enough, how do you define good enough in that context? And I was floored listening to him. Here's the logic. In fact, I think uh, this logic is actually ruling the day in American Christianity. I, I think it rules it by American Christianity. I mean the whole broad swath of American Christianity. I'm not talking about evangelicals specifically. I'm talking about the whole broad swath of the 80-something percent of Americans who say they're Christians. I think this logic is ruling the day. And the reason I say that this logic is ruling the day is because we're so anemic in missions. And I, I wonder if that's in part why. I mean, if people can be saved without hearing the gospel, why give my life for it? Right? Why? What would be the point of that? Here's how the logic of the argument goes. You ready? Here's the argument. The first thing they say, and this is a true premise. Here's the first premise. All men know God exists. All men know God exists because nature tells them he is. That sounds like a strange statement, but he is, meaning I am, right? All men know God exists because nature tells them he is. That's the first premise. And that is a correct premise, isn't it? That's correct. The second premise they have is all men also know God's law because it's written on their hearts. 
Again, that's correct, is it not? Romans chapter 1, as we've been going through the series of Romans, that is true. Romans 1, 18 makes it very, and following makes it very clear that all men know God exists. And if you go down to verse 32 of Romans 1, and then if you go into chapter 2, the law of God is written on their hearts. They know it. I think, by the way, the law of God is written on their heart. I think that's what people mean by the light that they have, right? If they're obedient to the light that they have, they'll be saved. The light that they have is what? That God exists and that he's given them a law that if they violate it, they're rightfully damned. They all know that. That's the light they have. The third thing that they posit, though, is where their premise becomes, is the third premise is where their argument falls apart. They say this, all men, all men are naturally capable of keeping God's law. All men are naturally capable of keeping God's law. And then they come with this conclusion. Therefore, at least some men will do so and will go to heaven. That's the conclusion. At least some men will do so and go to heaven. At least some will be obedient to the light that they have, and therefore they will go to heaven. What I want to explode is the myth of the third premise. And I think Paul has been exploding, frankly, for over two chapters. That all men are capable of keeping God's law. Not only are all men not capable of keeping God's law, no man is capable of keeping God's law. None. No, not one. Paul is clear that all men stand condemned, that no one will keep the law, that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's universal. Therefore, he says, no man will be saved apart from God's power through the gospel, right? No man. The flaw in the argument of those who hold the idea that men will be saved by obeying the light they have is that no man will obey the light they have. No one is capable of keeping the law. In fact, just the opposite. You know what the law does in us? And I'm going to show you this today. The law incites sin in us and demonstrates to us how sinful we are. No man will be justified or declared righteous before God by doing good works or obeying the law. This is what Paul's arguing. The gospel is not good news because it saves men who could have otherwise been justified if they had obeyed the law, i.e. the light they have. It's good news because it declares that God will justify what? Sinners. It is good news because he will declare the ungodly righteous. Because he will judge the lawbreakers as law keepers in Christ. That's what makes it good news. The gospel is the good news that needs to be declared in all the world. Because apart from it, all men stand condemned. That is the conclusion of Paul's argument. That is what he's laying out. It's what I want to focus on today. I want to focus today on the conclusion of Paul's argument. Paul's great argument as to why we all need the gospel and thus why Paul wants so desperately to preach the gospel where it's never been preached. I mean, that's his overriding motivation in this book. He's written this letter to the church at Rome because he so desperately wants to preach the gospel to them and because he wants them to support him so he can take the gospel to Spain where it's never been preached. Why? 
Paul doesn't want to visit the Canary Islands. See how beautiful it is, right? That's not his thing. He wants to preach the gospel where it's never been preached. Because he knows men are damned if they don't hear it. So I want you to look at once more at Paul's outline in this section. Here it is. And as we do, I want you to see two implications. Okay, two implications. I'll go through those with you in a little bit. Here's the outline. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. As we conclude this section of this letter, look at chapter 1, verse 14. The first thing Paul says is he knows the saving truth of the gospel and thus is indebted to preach the gospel. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Why is he under obligation? Why is he indebted to other men? He's indebted to them because they share a common misery. That common misery is sin and the condemnation of God that is upon them. They share that. All men share it. And Paul now knows the answer to that common misery, the solution, the resolution to it, which is the gospel. And so he says, you know what? I don't deserve this any more than they do. And I'm indebted to them. Therefore, verse 15, because I am, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And why am I eager to preach the gospel? Because I am not ashamed of it. This is a kind of a negative way of stating how excited he is about the gospel, how proud he is about the gospel. Why is he proud of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It itself is the power of God for salvation. And why do we need that? Verse 17 Or why is it powerful? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You need the foreign righteousness of God that is available to you only in the gospel. And you receive that by faith. So the question is, why do we need the foreign righteousness? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? You need this gospel because we're all under the wrath of God. And we're under the wrath of God because we're ungodly and unrighteous. We've suppressed the truth. God made the truth known and we all rejected it. He goes on. He says, not only have we all rejected it, I'm going to break this down. The Gentiles have rejected it. Verse 21 through verse 32 of that chapter. He just goes after the Gentiles and their rejection of it in case the Jews start to respond. Hey, well, that's true of the Gentiles, but not of us. He then deals with the Jews in chapter two, verse one and following all the way through chapter three, verse eight, demonstrating that they're also under the wrath of God, because although they had the great advantage of having truth, even in written form, they still did not obey it. They could not obey it. And then he goes on and. Verse 9 of chapter 3 and says this. All are under sin. All. We're all enslaved to it. All. And he goes on in verse 10 through 18 and says that all men are universally righteous. Unrighteous, excuse me. Universally unrighteous. They universally do not seek God. They all lack understanding. None of them does good. Not even one. This is proved out in their destructive lives. And it's caused by their lack of fear of God. It's argument he lays out. 
And now he comes to the final section of the argument. And he begins by dealing with the objection he knows he's going to hear. He knows that the Jews are going to respond this way. Paul, it's true that the Gentiles don't obey. You're right. It's true that they don't seek God. But we Jews have the law in written form. We have it in written form. And that demonstrates that Paul can't be talking. You can't be talking about us. And Paul responds, look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So this is the point I want to, or the first implication I want to make at this conclusion of Paul's argument. We're all condemned. We are all condemned. And our only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. We are all condemned. And our only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. That's the implication of this. All of us. Without exception. Why does he just address the Jews here? Paul's speaking here and he says that the law speaks to those who are in the sphere of the law. The reason I say the sphere of the law is he uses a Greek preposition there where it says under the law, the law, what the law, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That Greek preposition has to do with being under the, being in the sphere of the law. In other words, you're aware of it. And he's talking about the written law here, the way he's using this. You're aware of the written law. You're under it. The written law, in this case, he's talking about the Jews and them being under the Old Testament and knowing it, being aware of it, and it speaks to them. And what's his point? His point is that you guys are under the law and you violate it. It's talking to you, not just to the Gentiles. It's talking to you. And if you violate it, if the Jews who not only have natural revelation... General revelation, right? Where they have been told through the heavens that God exists and in their hearts the law has been written. They not only have that, they also have the special revelation of the Bible. If not even you can be saved, if even you are condemned because you cannot keep it, then guess what? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. If you can't keep it, no one else can either. If you're damned, so is everyone else. Every single one. All of them. His point is the law condemns them because they violate it. The standard is is perfection and they don't keep the standard. You know that that's the Old Testament standard? The Old Testament standard is perfection, isn't it? Nobody keeps it, do they? No one. Says every mouth is stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. You know, I think that people often rail against God, though, don't they? I mean, have our mouths honestly really been stopped by the holiness of God, by seeing his law? I mean, don't we think sometimes we have legitimate objections? We do, don't we? I mean, honestly, if you look down deep, I've got a legitimate objection. I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. Come on. I don't really deserve hell. 
I can see how Hitler deserves hell. I can't see how I really deserve it. I'm just not that bad. You know what? Not only am I not that bad, but things in my life have not been good. God has done some things that he's going to have to answer for. You know, people have that attitude. You heard it before. God needs to answer my questions. Why he has allowed this to happen. He's got to answer to me. Think about the arrogance of that. We do it, don't we? We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Some of us fall into this. We think certainly I'm not so bad that I'm a child of the devil. Certainly I'm not. Certainly I am not so bad that I should be called an enemy of Christ or ungodly and unrighteous. My heart certainly was never wicked and desperately evil. Come on. Isn't that a little overdoing it? That's our objection. Most of us now are really like the Pharisee in the story of Luke 18. I want you to turn there. Look at Luke 18. This is what we're often like. We're like this Pharisee. When we really should be like the tax collector in Luke 18, we're like the Pharisee. Luke 18, verse 9. I don't know about you guys, but this is often a great demonstration of my heart. Has been in the past and continue to fight this jesus tells a parable he being jesus here in verse 9 also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt you hear that what a great explanation of the audience right up front huh who's the audience some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous people who said i'm good enough my good outweighs my bad i'm really not that wicked And thus treated others with contempt. Here's how it happens. Can you believe that that person did that? I would never do something like that. Right? The self-righteousness that we all exhibit. He says this. Here's Jesus' parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. If you guys know the history of the Pharisees, the Pharisees come from the scribes. You had the Levitical priesthood and you had the scribes during the Maccabean period of, of leadership, um, which was about 160 um, BC time period up to about 60 BC time period. During that time period, you had the priests and the Levitical priests and you had the scribes and they were kind of hanging out in the Maccabean period. And what happened was essentially the priests really wanted to buddy up with the aristocracy They wanted to be rich and well-liked and well-thought of. And so they knew that they had to kind of become friends with the Hellenization of the area, the making, becoming more like the Greek culture, kind of giving up some of their views of uh, their strong views of Judaism, et cetera. And they said, we only want to believe in the first five books of the old Testament. And, and we don't really believe in the resurrection of the dead or any kind of afterlife, et cetera. And we call them the Sadducees, right? And you guys all learn that you know the Sadducees because because they don't believe in the resurrection and that's why they're sad, you see, right? <laughs> that's, that's who you hear in, in Sunday school. The other group that came out of that era was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were your good right-wing conservatives. 
We will not let the culture overtake us. We will be different. Pharisee actually means separatist, by the way. We will believe the whole Bible word for word. We believe it is to be interpreted literally. We believe in the supernatural. We believe there's a resurrection of the dead. We will stand for holiness. We will care for the people. And they were the people. They were the people's guys. They were the ones the people looked to. They were popular with the people. The Sadducees were the aristocracy. The people didn't like them. The Sadducees ruled the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees did not. The Sadducees never wanted to go against the Pharisees, though, because they were afraid of what? The people. And these are the Pharisees. These are the righteous guys. These are guys that keep the law to the detail. These are the guys that can quote the Bible backwards and forwards, that believe in the supernatural, the ones that stand for the truth. The Pharisees. That's who these guys are. And he says this. One of, the, one of them was a Pharisee. What's the automatic idea in the people's minds? These are good guys, right? These are the good guys. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. These are the bad guys, right? You don't even have to live in that culture to know tax collectors are the bad guys, do you? You can live now and <laughs> feel that way. But these tax collectors were actually abusive about it. They not only collected the Roman tax that was necessary, they actually went out and took even more to enrich themselves and really, really messed the people over. These are the scum of the earth. These are the guys they think the lowest of. Here's what happens. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Here's his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the, ta but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, now listen to Jesus' surprising statement to them. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. What that means? Declared righteous. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, our attitude is so often like the Pharisee, isn't it? The self-righteous. We're not that bad. We're so seldom like the tax collector who doesn't even feel like he has the right to come before God, but we beat our breast and say, God, I be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to be perfectly clear when you're judged against God's perfect standard of righteousness, your mouth will be shut. You'll be rendered speechless. When you see him in all his holiness and he holds a standard before you, you will have nothing to say. Job, you know, Job questioned God, right? God, why is this happening? I mean, this guy's life was wrecked. He's questioning God. Why is this happening? And when he saw the Lord, the Lord appears to him and says, you know what? I'm going to answer you, Job. Really, the Lord's going to question him. 
But if here's the Lord, look at Job's automatic response. Here he's going, why is this going on? And if only he'd come tell me, blah, blah, blah. The Lord shows up and here's what Job says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, I've seen God and my mouth is shut. I have no response. I have no more questions for him. And I certainly can't answer him. I'm just quiet now. I recognize who I am in light of who he is. Or like Isaiah, when he comes into the presence of God's holiness, right? Here's a great man of God comes in the presence of God's holiness. And what does he say in Isaiah six? And I said, woe is me for I am lost or I am undone. I'm coming apart for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or like the wedding guest in Matthew 22. You know this story? Jesus tells this parable about the fact that he, the king goes out and invites people, guests to the wedding. And one guy shows up at the wedding, but he doesn't have the wedding garments. You know what the wedding garments are? The wedding garments are something that the king puts on you. And they're foreign righteousness. He's not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He's trying to be there on his own account. And the king comes to him and he says, you know, how'd you get into the wedding without the wedding garment? You know what the, how the guy responded? He was speechless. So the text says, asked him, how'd you get into the wedding without the wedding? He was speechless. He had no response. He can't. How do you stand before God on your own accord and argue your case? You know what's going to happen when you stand before the holy justice of God and try to argue your case? For why you should be there, you will see him and be rendered speechless. You won't even make a case. That's what's going to happen. You'll just be speechless. Our mouths will be shut and we'll be found guilty. We'll be held accountable. That's what Paul says, right? In Romans chapter 3. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. No one, no one will escape this verdict. No one. Not me. Not you. Not your loved ones. Not school teachers. Not rich philanthropists. Not businessmen. Not Republicans. Not good family men. Not missionaries. Not people in the jungles who have not heard, not Mother Teresa, not the Pope, not the President of the United States, no one. They will all stand before God and be speechless. And they will be guilty. That's the verdict. You know how I can tell you what happens to unreached people groups? Those who have not heard the gospel? You know how I can tell you what the verdict is going to be for them, whether it be heaven or hell? Because the Bible tells us clearly what it's going to be. Guilty. Guilty. Every man, woman, and child that you know that rejects the gospel. I don't need to know their heart. If they don't believe in Jesus, 
if they're rejecting him, if they are not trusting in a righteousness that is not their own and they are trusting in their own good works, the verdict has already been told to us. It's guilty. Guilty. No one will be found righteous. The mouth of every man will be shut. So what does Paul mean by guilty? And why is everyone guilty? By guilt, Paul means you will be objectively found to have broken God's righteous law. You will be objectively found to have broken God's righteous law. God commands all men everywhere to love him with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And no one does it. Everyone fails, don't they? Everyone. Thus, everyone is guilty. I want to make this clear. Paul is not talking about the psychological experience of guilt. Okay. When he talks about guilt here, being held accountable, he's not talking about the psychological experience of guilt. He's talking about the objective reality of guilt. We must get this right or we may fail to proclaim the gospel. If we think the primary guilt problem we have is being as having this kind of feeling, this subjective experience of guilt, then we will think the gospel is what God does in you to remove that feeling. You guys hear me on that? If we think that the primary problem of guilt we have is a subjective feeling or experience of guilt, then we will think that the gospel is what God does in us to remove that feeling. But that is the primary nature of the gospel. While I think the gospel does accomplish that and can accomplish that, that's not what the gospel is. You guys hear that? That is not what the gospel is. The gospel is not what God does in you first. It's not first what God does in you. We give that impression with our constant focus on testimonies in the church. Constantly talking about our personal testimonies. I challenge you to go through the New Testament and find out how many times a personal testimony is given. How many times the apostles give a personal testimony? It happens, but it's pretty rare. And it's pretty rare because their focus was not on the subjective experience that people have of the work of the gospel in them. Their focus was on the objective reality of the gospel for them, of what Christ has done for them, not what he's done in them. What he's done in them is a fruit of what he's done for them. The gospel is about what God does for you in Jesus. He declares you not guilty in Christ. That's an legal, objective verdict for those who are in Christ. Even if you don't experience the relief from the feeling of guilt, do you know that it is possible? In fact, I know it often happens that someone trusts in the righteousness of Christ on the cross and they are declared objectively righteous. The verdict is in and they've been declared righteous And yet they still experience feelings of guilt. You guys ever experienced feelings of guilt? Does that mean you're unsaved? Of course it doesn't. 
What's glorious about the gospel is not that we have to sit around and get resaved every time we feel guilty again, because somehow what God did was just a work in us to relieve this feeling of guilt. That's not it. What's glorious about it is no matter how we feel at the time, God has declared us objectively righteous. And even when we aren't feeling it, it's still true because it's not our work. It's Christ's work. It's Christ's work. It's true that God does work in you, but that's the fruit of his work for you. Please don't trust in the work that you see God doing in you. Trust in the work that Jesus did for you. If you trust, try to trust in the work that you think God is doing in you, what will happen is you will doubt your salvation every time you feel depressed. Every time you feel guilty because you are trying to base your salvation on your subjective experience rather than the objective reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And that's not where our salvation is based. We are not saved by, we are not saved by our certainty that we are sincere. You hear that? We are not saved by our certainty that we're sincere. We're saved by sincere faith, justified through sincere faith. But we may sometimes be uncertain as to whether we are and still be saved. Why is everyone guilty? I mean, haven't some people's good works outweighed their bad? Look at verse 20. For by work, the works, by works of the law, by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will be justified in his sight. Look down at verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Look at verse 28 of the same chapter. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Just continue over to Galatians chapter 2. Because Paul wants to make this abundantly clear. And he does not only in Romans, he does in Galatians also. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, hear that yet? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You think that's clear enough? Has he been redundant enough there for us? Go on to chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one, no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Let's hear that. You cannot do enough good works to outweigh your bad. It is impossible The law serves 
to condemn you. If you want to be under it, you are under a curse. The question is then, if we can't be saved by doing the law, why did God give it to us? Right? Why did he give it to us? Why would God give us a law that cannot save us and then tell us to keep it? And if we keep it, we will be saved. Why do that? Look at the end of verse 20 of chapter 3 of Romans. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of what? Sin. Ultimately, the law is not the problem. The law is not the problem. If a man could keep it perfectly, he could be saved. But no man born in sin can. No man born in sin can. So when you see, well, I'll say this. When fallen men see the law, you know what it does to us? It incites sin in us. Look at Romans 7. This isn't the fault of the law, by the way. This is the fault of us, of our sinfulness. But look at Romans 7. And start in verse 7. He goes and says this. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means yet if it had not been for the law, if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he's not talking about the written law here, by the way, only although he's talking about it. Also, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. His point isn't that apart from God giving us a law, you're not a sinner. His point is that until you see the law, you don't recognize how sinful you are. You know why? What happens? What happens when I put up a sign that says, do not touch? What do you automatically want to do? Don't you? I mean, honestly, doesn't that law that I'll give you show you what you're really like? You hear this all the time. I I hear people say, well, maybe we shouldn't even give these teenagers these rules because you give them a rule. They're just going to want to break it. You guys heard that before. So somehow now giving them rules is a bad thing because it's going to incite in them. It's going to show how wicked they really are. Right. That's what people seem to think. We know it's true by experience. We know it. We can give people good laws. And because we're sinful, it'll incite in us a desire to violate that law. We shouldn't conclude then that the law is bad. Look what he goes on and says. Verse 9 and following. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He just realized where he was, his state. And he goes on, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What killed me? Sin, not the law. Sin used the opportunity of the law to do it. Sin was the problem. The law was not the problem. Look what he says in verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Why is it good? Look at verse 13. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Hear that? God's commandment demonstrated to me how sinful I am and showed me the exceedingly sinful nature of my heart. He gave me very clear commands and said, if you do these, you will live. And I did not do them. In fact, the giving of those commands showed me how wicked I really was. Showed me the truth of my condition. According to Paul in Galatians three, the law is a tutor to show us our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a tutor to show us our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through the law that we exceed, we see the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. Ultimately, the way this truth about our sinfulness, about the fact that when we stand before a holy God and see the standard of his righteousness is that we will have our mouths shut and we will know that we are exceedingly sinful and justifiably condemned. When we understand that, when we understand how exceedingly sinful we are and how justifiably condemned we are, then and only then will we understand how powerful Romans 3.21 is. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Do you hear that? That's why that verse carries power. Scripture just blows us out if you follow Paul's argument. The first and primary application of this text today is to have our arrogant mouth shut. That's it. What's your application? You want to know what the application is today? It's for God to show us his truth and to shut our arrogant mouths. To recognize our sinfulness and to trust the perfect work of Christ is our only hope. See, when our mouth is shut, we have no other hope but Jesus, right? And what he did. That's the first application. The work in which Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience to the law that we could not and did not and paid the penalty on the cross due us and rose from the dead so that if we believe in him, we will not only be forgiven, we will be justified, which means counted righteous. That's the application. You want to know what it is? Let your mouth be shut by the overwhelming evidence of how holy God is and how unrighteous we are and turn to Jesus and throw yourself at his feet and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's your application. That's the primary one. But don't stop there. There is a second application that I want us to see. And I'm going to make a statement that is intentionally redundant. If you remember, I told you the first implication is that we're all condemned. And our only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. Here's the second implication. The rest of the world is condemned and their only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. Isn't that the same thing? We are all condemned and our only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. And now you're saying the rest of the world is condemned and their only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ. How is that a second implication and not the same as the first? 
I'm being intentionally redundant because I just told you that every man is guilty and his only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think when we hear this, we sometimes, when we hear everyone or all, we think me, right? And me only, we kind of stop there. I'm condemned. I need Christ. He is my only hope. And you should respond that way. You should, that's appropriate, but you should go further. In fact, this is the part where I think the application really starts to grow difficult for those of, those of us who are already there. You should be devastated, devastated by the fact that billions of people don't know the truth. Billions of people. Billions of people are condemned and need the only hope for salvation that there is, which is Jesus Christ. Billions of people need it. Billions of people will die and they will go to a very real hell where the smoke rises forever, the fire is never quenched, and the worm never dies. They will be in misery, eternal torment under the wrath of God forever. Forever. They have no hope. They aren't people that are just out there that we see that are of other nations. They're human beings who are trapped in their sin. They're under sin, who stand condemned. And if they do not hear the gospel and respond, they will go to hell and they don't have anyone preaching it to them. Billions of people are blind and deaf spiritually, slaves to their sins, dead in their trespasses and sins. They cannot be saved by the light that they have. The truth they know is only sufficient to condemn them. That's it. That's why Paul's so eager to preach the gospel in Rome. That's why he wants to go to Spain so badly. That's why in Romans 15, he says this, that it's his endeavor never to build on another man's foundation because he wants to preach Christ's name where he has never been named. Why? Because Paul thought that was fun. To go and suffer for the gospel? No, because Paul knew that these men had no hope if he didn't. He knew the gospel of Jesus Christ is their only hope. In Romans 10, verses 13 through 17, and I want you to hear this really clearly. Paul tells us how every man can be saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How? Verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written How beautiful are the feet of those who preach 
the good news. Because verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we don't preach the word of God to these people, if people do not leave here and go there and preach to them, they will not have faith and they will be damned. That shouldn't be something we can let another moment go by and just blink at and say, let's go get some lunch. So here lies the second application for Sovereign Grace Church. We not only need to respond in Jesus in faith as our only hope, we need to recognize he's the only hope for the whole world. And that the only way they'll hear about him and be saved is if we preach the gospel to them. We have responsibility in this. You ready for that? I mean, this is a radical application. This isn't like get saved. Let's have a nice baptism. Live a nice life together. This is get saved, recognize that other people are damned and go and give up your life to see them saved also. I'm really calling on you right now to purpose in your heart. As those who are indebted to the world to tell them what you know, to fix your heart and direct your feet to proclaiming the gospel of the lost in the world. Tell it to your neighbor, tell it to your coworkers, tell it to your family members. Absolutely do that. And also tell it to the remotest parts of the world who have not heard. I can't tell you guys how much I long to see this church send men and women out to preach the gospel to those who haven't heard. I mean, I long to see that. I have no idea how we're all for to do it. I don't really even care. God wants it done. He'll provide. But it needs to happen. Who'll go? Any of you guys? Any of you, anybody in here say, you know what? I don't care. I'll give up my life, my safety, my comfort, my dreams, and my future to see the nations here of Jesus Christ. I'll do it. Anyone? Have any takers? I, I'm so serious about this that I was telling Karen and Kevin in my office the other day, Teresa and I have talked about it multiple times. I'm praying that this church will send countless numbers of people throughout the world to preach the gospel. And at some point, if we're not doing that, we'll go. Teresa and I, we'll just go. You guys can get a different pastor. Because we've got to get it out. We're not playing church here. People are dying and going to hell. Their only hope is Jesus Christ. The reason we're gathering here is to worship him and to be equipped so we can send that gospel out. To proclaim it to the nations. We can't afford to wait around. People are dying by the thousands and are damned. And we owe it to them to tell what a great salvation we have in Christ. So here's what I'm going to do. And I got this advice from a friend of mine named Brad Buser, who's coming October 7th, actually. I'm going to start having a monthly meeting. Right? A monthly meeting with those who are willing to go. And we're going to start planning for your departure. If you're ready to walk away from all this and prepare to leave 
then come talk to me afterwards. And you can start meeting with me and we will prepare for you to go. And the rest of you, because you know what? I'm going to tell you this. Although older people can certainly go and certainly be useful in support roles. Absolutely. And if you're feeling that tug, even I don't care how old you are, go. I'll tell you, in large part, I'm really, really speaking to those of you who are younger. And the reason I am is because you still have the ability and the time to learn another language and to preach the gospel to a language group that doesn't have it in their language currently. Something you're able to do uniquely that, that I'm already too old to do. and I'm only 34 because the ability to acquire that sort of ling linguistic talent is beyond me now. So I'm talking to some of you specifically. The rest of you, man, those people who go out need people in support roles, people overseas and people here. And so to the rest of you, I say this. I ask you to prepare to pay, to pay the bill for them to go. Because it's going to cost money. We need to be a church that says it's going to take the gospel, the unreached people of the world, no matter what it takes. If I've got to sell my house and move into an apartment, if I've got to get rid of my cars and take the bus, I will to see Mitch and Amy. If they decide to go, go to an unreached people group. I'll do whatever it takes to see it get out. That's what the kind of attitude we have to have. We all have got to commit to that. That's what this is about. Why? Because we desire to see all the nations come to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. That's what we exist for. He deserves and commands nothing less. Hear that? God deserves and commands nothing less. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your gospel and the fact that, Lord, our mouths are shut by the truth of your word. Our mouths are shut by your holiness, by your goodness, by your righteousness, by the perfect standard of your law. And Lord, we throw ourselves before your son and ask for his mercy. He is our only hope. And Lord, we pray that you will build in us hearts like the apostle Paul, like you worked in him, that we desire to preach Jesus where he has never been preached that we desire it so desperately that we will do whatever it takes to support that work. Lord, if that work support means paying for it financially, or if it means walking away from everything we have to do it ourselves, Lord, uh, I just pray that we're willing to do it as a church, that you would build in us the desire to truly see all nations come to the obedience of faith for the sake of your name. You deserve and command nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after the service, you're free to come up and talk to me about that. If you want to go, start meeting with me and get ready to go. If not, um, that's fine. Start praying about how God will work through you to pay for those who do. Um, if the band can come.